All right. So I want to bring a word this morning. Uh, it was, um, it's a word that came to me on Friday morning. And um, I know that I, I've had several people bring me a word saying that they were doing meditations and they thought of me. I can't tell you how much of a blessing it was. But So I want to bring this word hoping that it will be a blessing to you. It was a devotional that I did uh, from Jerry Bridges. And he was, he was talking about this verse in John, John 1, verses 14 and 16. Let me read those first. The Word of God says, And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. His glory being that He gave His life on the cross, was raised three days later, and now seated at the right hand of God. That's His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now this is what I wrote down from His devotion. Just as the ocean crashes waves on the beach, one is barely gone before another wave arrives. They just keep coming from an inexhaustible supply. God is full of grace and truth, and from his inexhaustible fullness, we receive one blessing after another. The God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10, is the same gracious and generous God today. Now, imagine you're at the beach. You wave, you, you've waded in up to your knees, not once will you ever say the ocean is, is still like glass. There's always a wave coming in. It may be a small wave. It may be a big wave crashing on you. But wave after wave after wave comes in. It's the same with Jesus. From his inexhaustible fullness, we receive one blessing after another. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of suffering, from his inexhaustible fullness, we receive one blessing after another. It may not seem that way to you now, especially if you're, in, if you're going through, through difficult times, but his grace cannot be denied. Wave after wave, blessing after blessing, they just keep coming from an inexhaustible supply. Now, eventually, you and I will be out of our trial, out of our suffering. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be in this lifetime, but surely it will come when we are received into his glory, where, like it says in Hebrews 12, 2, is where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we will see this out of Revelations 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And also in verse 5, and he who was seated on the right, on, on the throne of and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
we receive blessing after blessing just as the waves come after time after time after time. His inexhaustible fullness sends us these blessings. Praise God. Let me pray now. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word which shows us your truth, your gracious truth, Father God, and the fullness of it is inexhaustible. It cannot be thwarted. Your grace comes to us, Father, time and time again. Lord, help us to see your grace. Help us to see and receive your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Let's continue worshiping the Lord. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn into Hebrews chapter 12. And our passage this morning is Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. Don't worry if you don't have a Bible with you. We're going to have the text show up on the screen. Um, We've been thinking through this letter, which was written to the first century church of believers in Jesus. They were going through difficult times that were related to being a Christian in a sometimes hostile environment to Christians. They were going through the trials that are common to man in a world full of troubles like we have. So this letter was written to encourage them to continue on in the faith. Don't give up. Keep heart. Uh, but it's also written as an invitation. If you, don't, if you don't identify as a Christian yourself, this letter to the Hebrews is this holding up of the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ and all that we have in Him, all the promises of God that come to us through belief in Him. So that's another um, purpose of the letter that we're reading through this morning. So we're going to look at verses 3 through 11, and then I'm going to ask for the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the, mo- for the moment, all discipline seems painful Rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Lord, impress the truth of this word on us this morning. There's a a whole worldview here that could lighten our load, that could make us uh, 
get out from under the dark clouds that, that plague us day after day as we run into one trouble and the next. There, there's hope here for all of us. And we just ask that you make it clear to us the Holy Spirit is present to give us illumination, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that. I ask you that through the preaching of the, your word, you will do all those wonderful things that you want to do in our lives, whether that's conviction or encouragement, enlightenment, believing in Christ for the first time, all these things, we ask you to come now and do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the effect of this passage, the one that it's intended to have on us, is stated in verse 3, which is that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's, that's what we're supposed to take away after we read through this. Not weary, not faint-hearted. So not, not losing strength, not losing courage when we suffer hardships and trials when we go through life, which is the lot of everyone, but in this letter, particularly of the Christian, because some of those trials come from being a Christian. These hardships are called your struggle against sin. In verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus as Savior and receives the Holy Spirit of God, it creates a struggle that wasn't there before. It creates a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You want the Lord's will to be done in your life. And you want to see it done in the world. You want to see uh, God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, but sin is in conflict with those new goals, those new appetites that we have. And so it creates a conflict. There's a struggle against sin in our own lives and as it manifests itself in the world. And that struggle can make you weary and faint-hearted. For a number of reasons, you can get frustrated with yourself because you're always aware as you're growing uh, that there's stuff that's still wrong with you and it bothers you that that doesn't go away as fast as it should. You might get weary or discouraged because, well, the world, uh, it seems to be getting worse and not better, farther from the Lord, not closer. Or sometimes the world turns on you and is hostile toward you. As you are trying to do God's will, as you're trying to do the right thing in God's name, those are reasons why we can lose strength or lose courage in our struggle against sin. So that being the case, what counsel is given here to help us not grow weary or faint-hearted? The first counsel is what Pastor Dan covered last week in verses 1 and 2, and verse 3 refers back to it. It says in verse 3, "...consider him." who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Or as verse 2 said last week, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the first thing that can get you not weary and not lose strength is look, look at Jesus. Look at this amazing Savior. Here's somebody who actually did resist sin to the point of shedding his blood. It was his whole mission in this world to come as the perfect man who would die in our place, bear our punishment for our wrongdoing, and then rise again to victory, paving the way for us. That's also our trajectory if we put our trust in him. 
So we look to him and we say, yeah, yeah, a lot of hard things happened to him, but then he was raised. <laughs> and that's my path also. So take heart, church. That's number one. That was last week. That was Dan's message. But there's more counsel here to not grow weary. And it's in verses 4 through 11. And it's basically this from verse 7. God is treating you as sons. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So that is referring to all the hard things that you have to endure as you're trying to do the right thing in this world, as you're trying to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that feels really hard for you as you're doing that, that's what you have to endure. And this text says that is God treating you as sons, the fact that you're going through it. All of it is called discipline. Fatherly discipline, which is what fathers do to sons, right? The hard stuff sometimes. Now, for that to be encouraging, we need to unpack it because at first blush, fatherly discipline doesn't sound like something we would really want. I've got memories of fatherly discipline that are not pleasant, <laughs> and probably you do too. Uh, they're not my favorite memories. So, so how is this encouraging to think that somehow all that hard stuff that I go through is God disciplining me as a son? How is that helpful? Well, let's look at it. Let's see four things that are true about the hard things that we face in life as believers that will keep us from not growing weary or faint-hearted. Let's, let's walk through them. Here's the first one. The hard things are not punishment, but child training. Not punishment, but child training. Verse 5, have you forgotten the, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That's a quote from Proverbs 3.11. And here it's applied to those things we endure as followers of Christ like things that happen to believers in chapter 11. Uh, in chapter 11, you got Noah. He faced loneliness and ridicule as he's building this gigantic boat on dry land for 100 years. Uh, what, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> so he has to endure 100 years of that. Uh, Abraham faced unknown dangers when he was called to leave his home country and go to a foreign land. He has no idea what this land is like. Who knows what's going to happen there? But he has to go anyway. It's tough. Moses gave up what we read was the fleeting pleasures of sin to endure ill treatment with the people of God. So he's in Pharaoh's household. He's got it made. And he says, no, I'm going to identify with the slaves. Um, those are all hard things. Those are hard choices, trying circumstances. Believers encounter that as we walk by faith in this world. It's a struggle against sin. It's a struggle to obey God. And all of that is called discipline, the discipline of the Lord. But what is discipline exactly? That word shows up five times in this passage, and it means child training. It means instruction, upbringing. It's not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is paying for a wrong you've committed, but discipline is training toward a goal. 
And it doesn't have to have anything to do with something bad you did. It's just training. And typically, the discipline involves unpleasant things, which is what verse 11 alludes to. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We know that from life experiences, don't we? A coach trains athletes to be faster, stronger, more skilled, but that takes intense and painful workouts (laughs) to get there. The teacher trains someone to be proficient in a subject like writing or math, but many are the groans of the students as they're working through their homework. (laughs) And a father trains his children in the way they should go, using correction that seems painful rather than pleasant. I have a strong memory of my dad doing this for me when I was a kid. I had begun stealing things from the local store. Nothing big, just candy, things I could fit in my pocket, but I was getting okay with it. So one time we took a family vacation to the Grand Canyon. We lived in Arizona at that time. And, you know, we're in like Phoenix and it's pretty long to Grand Canyon. But we go there, there's a, there's a souvenir shop, and I see this hat. And I'm like, I want that hat. And so I got that hat. I took it. And I was successful in leaving the store without being caught. Well, my dad found that hat in the car uh, later on. And uh, I won't forget this because he said, we'll deal with this when we get home. We're at Grand Canyon and home is 250 miles away. I've got all that time to realize my doom is coming. And I knew that it was going to involve a spanking at least, and probably more. But I had all day to think about it. I'm awaiting my judgment. Well, I did get the spanking, but what I remember most was two things. He, he sat me down on the bed, and he impressed on me the seriousness of stealing. And then he asked me to name the store that I robbed, which he used that word, robbed, <laughs> So he could send them a letter and, tell, and send them money, and then he concluded with the statement, and I just hope they don't arrest me. <laughs> now, I know, that, I know now that was never going to happen, but in the moment, I thought, oh my gosh, my dad's going to jail because I stole this hat. <laughs> I never stole anything again. It worked. It was discipline. It was painful rather than pleasant, but it trained me in the way I should go. The passage says, the trials that you face and I face as believers in Jesus are God's fatherly discipline. They're tools in his hands to shape us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And that we couldn't be without those hard things. Now, there's more to say about that, so let's keep going. Here's another truth about the hard things in our lives. They are not disfavor, but an expression of love. They're an expression of love. We see this in a few places. The first is verse 6, again, quoting from Proverbs 3. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's so important to know when we're getting exasperated or worn out by our troubles, that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. There's love behind this. There's fatherly love that's somehow working behind this hard thing that I'm going through? 
we've got to believe that or we're going to have a lot of hard thoughts about God if we just judge God's motivation or person because there's this hard thing in front of me. No, this text says, no, he disciplines the one he loves. Love is behind what's happening to us, even if the thing itself is not good. Paul said it well in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's all the proof that we need to know that God loves us, that he brought his own son into this world to be crucified in our place, to bear our blame that we might be reconciled to him. That's love. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I remember an old, an old hymn that put it this way, What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and the one he loves in this particular way with these promises, is the person who has put their faith in Christ. He has a love for the whole world in in one sense, but there's a particular love that he has for those he calls his sons, those who have put their faith in Christ. And we see that love reflected here in the term son. Uh, The ladies here might think that you're left out of this text (laughs) because of that word. But that word is actually saying something reassuring for both men and women, boys and girls who put their faith in Christ. You see, in the ancient world, these Christians lived in, it was, it was the sons who carried the family name and received the family inheritance. They got the lion's share of the father's attention and the father's estate. So by saying God is treating you as sons, he is saying that in Christ, everyone, male and female, gets the father's full attention and the father's full estate. He loves all believers with the same generous fatherly love. The cross is the proof of that personal affection for you. His resurrection, the proof that you have an inheritance after death. But it's easy when suffering to think that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't care, that maybe he even hates you. But that is not the case. The writer goes on to say in verses 7 and 8 that the discipline of hardships is actually a sign that you really are his child that he really loves you. The verses say this, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if God didn't discipline us through things that are unpleasant, it it would mean that he doesn't really consider us to be his genuine beloved children. Because the picture here is of an ancient home where a father had a son by his wife, and then he had another son by a prostitute, here called an illegitimate child. That was common in those days. And the son of the prostitute was not recognized as the true son. That son wasn't going to inherit anything. That son wasn't going to get the father's attention. But the son of the wife, the legitimate son, was going to get the father's attention, going to get the estate, going to be loved by this father. And so what this is saying to us is that we're like that legitimate son, that God says, yes, you genuinely are mine, and so you have everything for me. 
His discipline is a sign that we are his legitimate children. I think all dads can relate to this. If your child is very naughty, (laughs) rebellious, selfish, and so forth, you intervene if you love them because you don't want them to grow up that way. Their future matters to you. It matters enough that you'll do the hard work to try and shape their character so that you help them work out the stuff that's destructive and pursue those things that are beautiful. That's what love does, like you intervene. If you don't do anything, then you're, you're basically saying, I don't care. I don't care what happens to you. The discipline is the evidence that God is really in our lives and wants something better for us. Fatherly discipline is his love. It shows us that we are, like Ephesians 1.5 says, we are adopted through Christ Jesus. He cares very much about how we grow up, about what kind of person we are becoming. That leads to another truth about the hard things in our lives. They are not meaningless, but they are for our good. They're not meaningless, but for our good. In other words, the hardship might not be good in itself, but God uses it to do us ultimate good, which is to become like Jesus Christ. So verses 9 and 10, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. God disciplines us for our good, and what is good is that we share His holiness. Here's why we might have to have a a mindset shift, an adjustment to our thinking about what is truly good for us, because we don't normally think this way. God's definition for our good is to make us holy as He is holy to become more and more free from sinning in our thoughts, words, and actions, or to say it another way, the training goal of God's fatherly discipline is that we become more like Jesus, His perfect, holy, and righteous Son. You look at who Jesus is and how He lived in the world, and that is what's truly good for us. We don't tend to think that way, at least I don't. My definition of good is no suffering, No affliction, nothing painful rather than pleasant. But God's definition of good is becoming like Christ. And like any training, it involves unpleasant things to get us there. I have examples of this this principle in Scripture, that God uses painful things to produce good things in us. For example, Psalm 119, 67 and 71 The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Don't we know from experience that sometimes God has to get our attention with suffering before we will really deal with some kind of sin issue in our life? It takes that sometimes. We go astray, and sometimes we need to feel the consequences of that before we have the conviction and the resolve to really deal with it. I can remember a time the Lord did that in my life when I was a single and not too long out of college. I had a job that was ruining me. Too much work, too much strife at work, 
And one day I just quit outright. I didn't even have a job lined up. I'm like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I don't think that was wrong, but what I did after that was wrong. <laughs> because I was living with a guy who was like my mentor, um, and I was paying him rent. And I just took the whole summer off after quitting my job. Like, like I don't know, I'll come back at the end of summer and I'll start looking for work and I'll get a job right away. It's not that hard. Right? So that's what I did. I spent all my money all summer long on doing fun things. And then at the end of summer, I'm like, okay, now it's time to look for a job. And guess what? No jobs. <laughs> I didn't get a job. And I ran out of money. And I had to go to my mentor, my, my landlord, and say, sorry, I can't pay rent. <laughs> and he just sat me down and said, so what was your plan? And I had to realize I didn't have a plan. You know. I kind of had a plan, but it wasn't a working plan. It wasn't a responsible plan. And so I was faced with the fact that, yeah, I got to grow up. I got to become an adult and actually go out and look for work and do something that'll pay bills. It was good for me that I was afflicted. I learned wisdom through that failure. But the painful things that God uses to train us are not always related to our failures or sins. Sometimes they're pain that comes from being faithful from doing the right things. We have Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He was speaking about his traveling gospel ministry where he's planting churches. And he says this, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul's saying, you know, we're out there preaching the gospel, we're planting churches, we're doing the Lord's business, and bad stuff is happening to us all the time. I mean, persecution is coming at us. We thought we were going to die. That's how bad it was. So how does he process that looking back? He says, well, it was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was God's fatherly discipline. This was training. This was weaning me off of my uh, reliance on comfort and safety and rely on the God who raises from the dead. Even if they kill me, I will rise from the dead. So I'm safe in that way. It trained him to go there in his deep trust with God. There was a purpose in it. It was for our good, Paul would say, that we may share in His holiness, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ who trusted in His heavenly Father all the way to the cross and to death in the anticipation of His resurrection. We'll all have some version of that in our lives. Bad things will happen. But there's comfort in knowing that it isn't meaningless if it happens to you as a believer. God is treating us as sons. He is shaping us into the image of Christ. He's using a painful thing to do us good. And that really hit me this week because I'm reading a book that said basically the same thing, that God's primary agenda in our lives is to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us like Jesus in our character, our actions, our, our loves, um, my natural tendency is to think that God's primary agenda for me is to accomplish a whole lot of things in the short time that I have. 
uh, in this world. Uh, lead a church, lead a family, make disciples, leave some kind of a legacy of all of your accomplishments. That's how my mind works. But that's not his primary agenda for my life or for your life. It's that we become more like Jesus in our thinking, in our affections, our trust, our joy, our peace, the fruits of the Spirit. That's what the Lord's discipline is for. It's to create that in us. If at the end of your life, you are more like Jesus Christ, but have no legacy of great accomplishments, that is a successful life. God has accomplished the good that he intended, which is that we would share his holiness. One more truth about the hard things in our lives as believers. They are not random, but divinely orchestrated. Not random, but divinely orchestrated. This, this is more of an implication from the text than something that's specifically stated. But it's true, it has to be true, if all of this is going to make sense. So think about the range of afflictions that attend our struggle against sin. The sin in ourselves, the sin in our world. There's this, everything from consequences for our own bad decisions... Uh, to stock market crashes, to diseases that rack our bodies, to being slandered on social media, to being jailed for faithfulness to Christ. All of those things would fall under the umbrella of what God uses to discipline us for our good. And that can only mean that God actually has control over all of those things. Because discipline involves choosing the right means to train children. A good father thinks through, what's going to best help my son or daughter to, to, to not take away things from her sister? <laughs> uh, not be so selfish. What's the right way that we can teach this to her? And so there's, there's an intentionality. There's a choice there. This is how I'm going to do the discipline. And that's what God is doing with everything in the world that can affect you. He has control over it. He can choose this painful disease. He can choose that stock market crash. He can choose this slander on social media. He can choose any one of those things. It's tailor-made for your individual person to, to create in you a, a likeness to Christ. And he knows what he's doing. It's perfectly designed. He's not like earthly fathers who are always kind of trying to figure it out. And sometimes we hit it and sometimes we don't. With God, it's always exactly the right thing. Because he's got infinite wisdom, infinite love, and he cares so deeply. And he knows us completely. If it happens to you, it happens because God is treating you as sons. He's allowing it in your life to do you the good of conforming you to the image of Christ. It's like what Joseph said to his brothers after they sold him into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God can take an evil, terrible thing that people do because they're evil and terrible, and yet he can take that evil, terrible thing and make it do good to you to conform you to the image of Christ. Let me just summarize the encouragement of this passage this way. God is so in control of our lives that everything that is hard about them is overseen and orchestrated by His infinite love and His wisdom for our good. So 
I'll say it again. God is so in control of our lives that everything that is hard about them is overseen and orchestrated by His infinite love and wisdom for our good. And so if that's true, and it is, then we don't have to grow weary or faint-hearted. God has got this. God has got us. Even the hard things have to do us ultimate good or He wouldn't allow them. So we don't need to obsess over today or tomorrow. We don't need to worry. God's not an absentee father. He's always caring for us, always training us, always intending to shape us into the image of Christ. I'll give an example of one way the Lord is doing that for me. It seems small, but it's big to me. It's car problems. (laughs) I hear some groans. Yeah, I hear some recognition there. Well, I think our family has more car problems than the average person. I mean, I don't know what the average is, but we're above it. I know that. (laughs) Yes, it's because we buy used cars and used cars have problems. But we bought a brand new van once, and it got crashed into twice. Once when it was parked in front of our house in Minnesota, parked, and then again when it was here and Mary got rear-ended by a tow truck of all things. And it was totaled. So it's not just about old cars, it's the new ones. They also get wrecked. That's kind of our story with cars, right? And that used to, and I won't say that it doesn't, but like that has really gotten under my skin so many times. Like there's another car problem. But I'm starting to see that in a different light. Because I realize this is God orchestrating our car problems to train me. He's getting at something. The cars are just a tool to flush out what's in my heart that needs to change. The unbelief in God's goodness. The sense of entitlement that I have to a trouble-free life. The readiness to complain when time and money has to go to another car instead of something else. It seems painful rather than pleasant, but God is using it to help me trust Him. We're still getting where we need to go somehow. We've seen unexpected money come in when we needed it. I've also noticed that lots of times when we break down, it's right here in town instead of on a long trip to someplace way out there. Like we have come back from Mexico and then it breaks down. (laughs) That's happened also. God is in this. So I'm learning not to stress about it so much because I've seen that he's faithful and he's taken me one step closer to the image of Christ as I stop to as I stress less, trust more, look for the good. That's how he's training me. He's got something in your life. He's going to be working on it. You're going to say, I wish this wasn't here. This thing that I hate most about my life is actually the very thing God is using to change you. That's intentional. And that brings me to the end, to the, to the response. How do we position ourselves to benefit from this? I would just say, be trained. <laughs> uh, cooperate. Uh, allow yourself to be trained by things. When you face the unexpected, the unwanted, the things that you don't want in your life, don't stiffen your neck. Don't charge God with wrong, but ask for His wisdom to learn from it. Verse 11 leaves us with this thought. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
The peaceful fruit of righteousness is one of the good results God intends to build into His people. It's, it's the calmed and quieted soul of Psalm 131, the person who's not flailing about in life, panicky and distracted, worried about many things. This is the person that keeps doing God's will, keeps struggling against sin with composure and confidence, even as new challenges keep coming up. God's discipline leads to peaceful fruit of righteousness, but we shouldn't miss the, the qualifier. This peace only happens to those who have been trained by it. Trained by God's discipline. It is possible to not be trained by the things that happen to us. We can just grumble. We can just rant. We can just complain to one another. And we don't learn anything. We feel better because now you've also entered into my misery and I've made you miserable with me. So misery loves company. But what have we learned? Have we advanced? Our hearts have to be in a position where we're yielded, where we're willing to say, wait a minute now. There is a God. I've trusted in Him. He's promised me life. He's also my Father. He's disciplining me. So what could this mean? What's going on right now? Because whatever that is, I want to learn it. And maybe, it'll, maybe the discipline will be over quicker <laughs> if I learn. <laughs> Let's not drag this thing out. Just, okay, teach me, uh, you know. But, but are we alert? Are we looking for it? I think that's the way we want to receive these things. God is active. Um, and I've given examples. I've got more car examples, but I won't, I won't bother. Uh, <laughs> Let's be receptive. Let's calm down. Peace, quietness of soul is ours in the midst of life's trials. God is so in control of our lives that everything that's hard about them is overseen and orchestrated by His infinite love and His wisdom for our good. God is treating us as sons. So therefore, let us not grow weary or faint-hearted in our struggle against sin. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that there is security and comfort and there are realities that are true that are out of our sight, but they are things that sustain us. When we feel like we can't go one more step, all of a sudden new grace comes in to help us. These kinds of promises, this, this vision of who you are and what you've promised us. So I just pray that everyone here, Lord, would, would get a taste of it today, uh, see you working in this world See the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Find refuge in Him and hope. Hope not only for a life to come, but for this life. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.